You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation. Brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com. And be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, in-person classes, and customized corporate workshops and performances. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. You can go online and find out all the information you need at secondcity.com. Welcome to the world of Tony Ho from CBC Podcasts. It's an award-winning, bite-sized narrative comedy series about human relationships. Familiar, hilarious, and sometimes unnerving. The troupe features Miguel Rivas, Adam Niebergall, and alumnus of the Second City Mainstage, Roger Bainbridge. They will take you on a darkly comedic ride that finds honesty in every situation. You can listen and subscribe to Tony Ho on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, this is a fun conversation. Uh, Pame Bassi is the chief learning officer for the Kraft Heinz Company, uh, where she drives a culture of continuous learning, bold creativity, and intellectual curiosity. Um, and she's responsible for the company's global learning and development strategies and initiatives. Um, she also wrote a book uh, called My 52 Weeks of Worship, uh, where she went to a different place of worship every week uh, over the course of a year. Um, she also trained at Second City. She actually uh, graduated the conservatory program. So we're able to talk about uh, future of learning, uh, improv, uh, faith, uh, all, all these journeys. So I think you're really going to enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting the yes and. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Hey, my bestie, welcome to the show. Hi, Kelly. So good to be here. Thanks for having me. There is actually so much I want to talk to you about your book, your improv journey, the future of learning, which we're fascinated on in this podcast. But I want to start by talking about your name um, and your full name, because uh, you write in your book, My 52 Weeks of Worship, that your dad gave you a Nigerian name to ensure that no church confirmation would replace your Nigerian name with any other name. So tell us a little bit about, about this. Sure. Um, uh, my first name or my full name is Ekpedeme Mfun Bassi, and it means who but God could have given me such a beautiful child, which I don't always embody, but I try. Um, my parents are both from Nigeria, West Africa. I was born here in the States, born in New York and raised in Atlanta. Um, but my parents have names that they were given. They were raised Catholic. And so, you know, people look at my parents' names and they look at mine and they ask me what's going on because um, they, my father was Ifram, my mother, Patricia. My father is a very proud African man. He passed away in 2009, um, was a real giant in my life and in many, many lives. He gave us, I have three sisters, each of us Nigerian names, and he was very clear that he wanted to make sure that we were um, connected 
to the continent, had especially being born and raised outside um, right. and knew, knew our African history. And so I have the longest, the name with the most syllables, but it was very, it was, uh, you know, I was not raised Catholic, so there was no actually no confirmation, you know, for me to be concerned about, but it was an intentional um, situation. I'm one of my only, I'm the only sister who has a nickname uh, because I've been called so many things over <laughs> my life that at some point um, I just decided to go with a nickname that had been something that my mom called me because my parents are from different parts of Nigeria. And so different languages, my, my name is in my father's language. And so a nickname, a pet name that my mom called me sounded something like Pam A. And so that's what I went by. I didn't spell it until I was, I don't know, 10 or 11, went to a new school and they said, well, how do you spell it? And I thought, well, no one ever has. And so by the end of that day, I came up with the, the, the P-A-M-A-Y, which is what people call me now. But it was uh, names are something that I could talk about for a long time because um, it's, for some people, it's easy. What's your name? They just say it and they move on. And for others, it's a little bit more complicated. One of my favorite guests we had on the podcast is Dolly Chug, who wrote this great book called The Person You Mean to Be. And, um, and, and she's of Indian descent, uh, but she kept she, she kept not pronouncing one of her students' names because she couldn't understand it. And then she realized, oh, wow, that there's some there's an othering factor to that. Right. I mean, sure, I, I, in, in that, wouldn't it be great if we all like just did the did the effort? And I know as a boy growing up as a Kelly with an unusual name that, that w- would get teased. But it also there was a part of it that had me st- stand out. So there's there's, you know, a, a few different things going on there. Absolutely. And I would not trade my name for the world now after a childhood of, of uh, interesting interactions or not even childhood, a life, because it does have so much meaning to me and ties me very directly to my story. Yeah. Uh, in your role at Kraft Heinz, uh, you've talked about creating a culture of continuous learning. And you say that that starts with ownership. Talk to about what you mean when you say ownership. Fantastic. Sure. I mean, we, you know, one of our values at Kraft Heinz is we own it. It really runs through the bloodline of the organization. And when you're talking about being a continuous learner, that's something that comes from having a learning habit. It comes from making a commitment to learn something new every day, whether it's just for a few minutes and to share that with other people. So you really have to own your own learning and development. Often in corporate spaces, we talk about training and you think it's something that someone assigns to you or something that you have to be told, do this, do that, learn that. And that has its place. Certainly, you know, education is is structured in many ways. But what's amazing is if it's sitting on top of a culture of, I'm a learner. When I have a challenge, I try to learn my way through it. I try to figure out what do I need to know and where can I find the information that I need to get there. And I think a lot of people now talk about growth mindset and having that expansive yeah. view. Um, and so that culture of continuous learning really is, I think, imperative if you're going to have a, a situation where people feel like, well, if I don't know, I can find out. And that's something that's valued at my company. All right. I'm, so I'm curious now with you, it's sort of a chicken and egg question, chicken or the egg question. Because you, in your journeys, your various journeys, you're doing all the things, you're giving yourself the cues to create these habits that now people write about. But I don't know that they were writing about it 20 years ago when you started, right? I mean, like, did you kind of fall into this because it was sort of your personality and then you read the literature one day and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm scientifically doing the things one needs to do to, you know, further my, my mind and be in a growth mindset and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, it certainly has been a journey for me as well. And one of the things is, you know, culturally speaking, education and learning was always very important. So I had high expectations coming from Ifram and Patricia saying, you know, you will focus on your education, you will learn and that sort of thing. But that still 
It was very structured. I think that over the years, I'm somebody who liked to kind of learn fast. Um, I was told very young that I was smart. And when I got to, to Stanford, where I did my undergrad and I took my first calculus course, I was like, oh, wow, maybe I'm not. Right. right. And so I lived that experience. And if you think about it, if you listen to Carol Dweck, uh, who the growth mindset a professor at Stanford, she talks about that moment where you're like, Do, am I smart or not? And isn't it better to think that I have grit? I can walk through this. I can learn. I can learn my way through it. So I lived that. It wasn't until I mean, I've been doing these kind of my projects, if you will, mm-hmm. for about 11 years. And when I really started to say, you know what, I'm just going to it's like, here's a hypothesis. I'm going to yeah. start regularly chipping away at this to see what I learned from that and have gotten to the point where I realized that learning my way through it is really the way to think about things as opposed to being smart or not smart, knowing or not knowing that, that it is a continual learning uh, journey that, that you should be on and should be excited to be on, even when sometimes it's difficult. And there are alternative benefits, right? So uh, I, Jonah Berger was on the uh, podcast with his new book, which is fascinating, uh, uh, about how you get people to do stuff. Um, and I was telling him about how my son and I uh, last summer started trying to find the best Italian beef in Chicago. And we sort of went on this journey. And, and he's like, okay, so you've just designed a space where you're alone in the car with your son uh, and be able to have kind of conversations. He's in his 20s, he's an adult. So, and you're meeting all these people and you're seeing different parts of Chicago. And I thought about this with, with your sort of spiritual journey. And we're going to talk about that a little later in the book. But it wasn't just that you were visiting all these houses of worship, you were sort of touching all aspects of your community and meeting kind of interesting people. It's like, and we are, you know, we're wired not to do that. We're actually, our default setting is to do nothing or, 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 or you know, put it off. But I, I just think that sort of intentionality is, is so great. And I mean, I agree completely because, you know, even myself who likes these projects and I'm, I'm on number three now, um, you never know what you're going to learn when you start. Nope. When I, you know, I, you know, my 52 weeks of worship was a, based on a grief journey. I kind of was like at the bottom of the bucket and I was like, well, what the heck? I need to figure out how to get out of here. Let mm-hmm. me just see how people in different spaces figure out how to get out of bed in the morning, what they believe, what to your point, community and family and worship and all these things that people hold so dear. And what I ended up receiving was just gifts upon gifts upon gifts, learning about other people from different walks of life, learning about myself. I say, you know, you put as many mirrors up to your face as you dare to look in. And every time you walk into a space, you learn something about yourself. And so that gift is amazing. I mean, it, it almost makes up for kind of any discomfort you feel when you are in a space of not knowing. And you're like, wow, I have no idea what I'm doing here. But wow, I know that something good is going to come out of this. And I'm going to learn something. Um, and it's going to, you know, it's going to enrich my life. And hopefully I can also enrich other people's lives as well. In an article you wrote, quote, uh, change can be challenging, but discomfort can be the catalyst for future success. Um, did you learn that in improv class? <laughs> you know, it certainly made it more likely that I would not just run screaming from the discomfort. Because yes. I have been on a lot of stages with a lot of t- people and thinking, I remember, Kelly, one of my first... Um, performances it was in Dottie's skybox and mm-hmm. I know I asked for you know you asked for a suggestion give yeah. me a suggestion of a sport and somebody said to me and my partner skeet shooting <laughs> and you didn't and know what like, that was what the heck is skeet shooting but you don't have them you don't you can't no. say no no I don't know that please give me another one yeah and so I was okay. like well skeet shooting's gonna be what I make it me and Mike mm-hmm. we're gonna yes and each other and 
And I, I will never forget that moment because you, to your point, it was very uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but through our training, we learned, you know, the audience has, you asked, they've given you a gift and whatever you do with it up there can be brilliant or it can be not. So, and then you move on, but uh, it, yeah. And they can, the audience will celebrate your not knowing and your journey starts trying to make sense of something. That's the thing we forget is that at the root of all of this is most people really do want your success. People are invested in other people's success. And, and when you, I was just talking to my wife about this, who's a long time. She actually taught you. She subbed one class. Uh, yes, I remember. Of course. Yeah. Uh, uh, she remembered you. Uh, and I was at, talking to her about, I'm writing a thing on resilience. And she's like, resilience comes from the ensemble. The ensemble behaviors, you're not alone. And I'm like, that's powerful. And it's, and it's comforting, right? And I talk, yeah. I've done some, uh, I was on a podcast where we're talking about stand-up versus improv. And I said, well, stand up, it's you and the microphone. And if you're not funny, people are just going to look at you and it's going to feel like death because you're not funny. Improv, as you know, you know, we're going to make each other look funny or we're going to walk through this together. And it's, there's mm-hmm. something so powerful about that. And I'll tell you, just to tie it to my work at Kraft Heinz, we talk about what we expect from leaders at Kraft Heinz. And the first thing is work as a team. Because when you're working in an ensemble, then A, first you're, you know, you're benefiting from this is my strength. This is your strength. Let's work with each other. But also there's this feeling that, especially when we're walking through a situation that's new or novel or weird or challenging, we have each other's backs. And so that is so much more powerful than, you know, me being, you know, the shiny soldier who's hilarious and smart and knows all the things because that's not real, you know? Right. Right. I think too, in improvisation, especially given the world we're living in now, uh, which is if you're if you're participating by the rules or the, and 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 the, the pedagogy, um, you are uh, really listening through difference, um, and and it it and it should be promoting inclusion. Um, it, it, it crosses over all those areas, um, but it's very it's you know it's very hard for people, and I, I imagine that's why so many incredible people come out uh, of of a place like second city is because they, they kind of figure out that the superpower isn't just to use it on stage. Right. Oh, absolutely. And And it's funny, you know, when I was in undergrad, I've always wanted to be a comedian, but I didn't know how to tell. I mean, you know, I, I come from a pretty typical immigrant story where doctor, lawyer, engineer, those are your options. And so comedian, not so much, but now they're improv professors, you know, and as you know, you're doing work, I believe with university of Chicago, there, there are so many, academic spaces that have have embraced improv anytime anybody wants like you know and part of my job is to make sure people have the learning they need in corporate spaces presentation skills you know all those things improv is infused everywhere so who knew that you know i didn't know maybe others knew that it could all the world my worlds would come to collide well and in your book my 52 weeks of worship you you actually write about uh, your experience uh when you were co-teaching improv class with uh, D with Deanna Griffin yeah, sure. irons. Um, and uh, uh, you, there was, there was an incident. <laughs> Can you tell us about that story? Yeah, I will never forget it. First of all, I mean, Deanna is one of my closest friends. I, we performed together um, and we were teaching and, you know, the students were, they're teenagers. They have other things on their mind besides learning improv and someone threw a chair because something was happening outside of my line of sight. It hit me in the head. Oh. It didn't really, I mean, nothing happened. I just was like, right. who's throwing chairs at me? 
And I had a moment where they were like, well, what do you want to do? And we decided to just diffuse the situation. We sent the kids home. Um, but it, it was an interesting experience because later I saw that same person, one of the students in a completely different situation. And he was doing great. He's very yeah. talented. He was singing in a choir and he remembered me and he said, you know, we were, you know, we, we gave you a hard time, but I, I really enjoyed those improv classes. And I thought, you never know what's really going on. You just do the best you can to, to share your, your, your gifts. Um, and you never know when you might come back around and someone like in this case, a teenager who was doing just fine. Um, remind, and I thought of the chair and who's hitting this bassy with the chair today. It was interesting reading the book over the weekend. And in that moment where the police were kind of pushing you to press charges. Yeah. And, 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 Sitting here today, and you know, right in Chicago, um, with all that is going on, that it was like you, you know, you wouldn't have known ten years ago that that this would become part of the cultural conversation of of that that tension uh, in terms of uh, it was it was kind of powerful to read now. Yeah, and frankly, at that time, I was absolutely thinking about that because they were teenagers, and they were, and I thought, well. I don't know what, how things happen in the public school. So maybe the, you do call the police when things happen in, in, the, in the hallways and byways, but certainly introducing, you know, the police at a time where I thought these are just unruly kids, they're teens yeah, yeah. and perhaps setting someone on a path at my, you know, request that could lead to anything that could transform their whole life in a negative way. I thought, I don't, I'm not going to be the catalyst for that. No. I did not see anything there that suggested that there was malintent. They were just horsing around and, you know, and I was fine. So um, you're, it's funny that you remind me that, but I absolutely, I mean, I think it was something that I was thinking about as, uh, at that time. Certainly things have escalated um, a great deal yes. um, in terms of the spotlight that's being put on, uh, on such issues. But at the time, I remember thinking very clearly, I'm not going to be the one who's going to send this, per- this, this young person down this path. No way. Not me. Good. Good. Um, good. So, good. Yeah. Um, the book is really a journey wrapped in grief, um, rumination. You're, you're very, very honest uh, <laughs> uh, with yourself and, and, and to your readers. Um, and I, you said in the book, it, it, and you know, you, you're visiting, you took 52 weeks to visit various uh, uh, spiritual home services. Um, and you said, quote, in some ways, I believe the places that I visited chose me. Um, when, when did you have that realization? Was that midway through the journey or was that? Well, one of the fun things when you decide to do a, like a learning journey project, like the ones I choose is for me, it's not scientific. So I didn't, you know, get out a spreadsheet and map all the different places I would go from week one to week 52, um, every week I said, okay, what's going to happen this week? And just like I do with my learning journeys, um, my 365 days of learning, I did at craft times. I let my life inspire the choice. Mm-hmm. So what was I struggling with? What, what did I, did I need a, like a loud enthusiastic service? Did I need something more meditative? Did I want to learn? Did I want something familiar? Did I want something that I, that was going to kind of, um, kind of, uh, put me out of my comfort zone? And so every place that I chose was really tied to whatever was happening to me in that week. And then when I got there, there was a gift for me um, mm-hmm. every single time, a gift, an interesting person, something that the, the worship leader said, some music, um, something that made me laugh. There was one place I went, they had popsicles. And I was like, it's hot. This is great. So there was just, and I think that is very tied to improv, which is 
I'm just going to walk into this situation with mm-hmm. my friends um, mm-hmm. and people are going to ask us to do things. And then we're going to see what we can do to make this great. And so people have told me in the past, well, that's very courageous. And I thought, well, I don't know. It's just expecting to see goodness out there and then being delighted when that was confirmed that there are good people everywhere. Yeah. The phrase I often use when I'm talking about this stuff is one needs to replace blame with curiosity. You know, if you can go that. in there. Yeah. And, and so this, you know, we don't, uh, uh, we don't book the podcast in order or anything like that, but ironically last week's guest was Scott O'Neill, who's the CEO of the Philadelphia, Philadelphia 76ers. He's got a great new book. He has a whole chapter about his journey because he uh, converted when he was 48 to the Church of Later Day Saints. Wow. Um, you know, and he, and he gets the people sometimes, and, and you have this in your book, right? You walk in with a little bit of like, what's this going to be like? Yeah, sure. Talk about that experience. Yeah, there were certainly places where I had, I like to say, there's more commentary about these communities than others. And so, you know, I could walk into, you know, any church. I was raised Christian. And so even mm-hmm. if I didn't, believe exactly what was happening. I was comfortable, but there are some places that I thought you have to work really hard to, to be open and not let the, you know, any preconceived notions from yourself or from the world stand in the way of whatever you're about to experience. Um, and I felt that time and time again. And there were some times where I failed, frankly, where I thought, wow, yeah. I am way too like in my head, if right. you will, about what's happening here and checking in to say, well, is this okay? Is this okay? Is this okay? There was at least one place where I was like, I need to leave before anybody says anything to me because I don't want to get sucked into any sort of, you know, situation. Um, but I think the practice of being able to walk into different spaces with o- an open heart and good intentions was the foundation of my inclusion practice. Mm-hmm. Because to your point, the whole po- that this whole diversity and inclusion conversation, inclusion is about learning. And if yeah. I don't, if I if I don't know anything about your lived experience, I'm going to either make assumptions or something else is going to fill in that space. But if I'm open and I say, Hey, Kelly, I know you've had this experience or Hey, person who lives completely different than me or believes differently than me. I'd like to learn more about you because once people are not strangers to you, it's much more difficult to other them. And so I didn't know it. I mean, there was so much going on during that first 52 weeks. And I actually frankly did it again in Brooklyn, Um, Mm -hmm. 52 worship experiences in Brooklyn, because Brooklyn is like the Republic of Brooklyn, um, very diverse. Mm -hmm. But that practice of reaching into people's lives and being humble enough to say, I don't know what goes on here. I don't know the rules here. Who wants to help me understand is the kind of practice you need to have as you're trying to become a more inclusive manager, leader, human. You know, there's a lot out there that you don't understand. I don't understand. And Mm -hmm. And it's just being open and humble um, enough to ask questions instead of make assumptions. And out of all those visits, I, it appears you only got turned away once. Just once. Yeah. And it's and- funny because I got turned away once. And by that time, I thought, well, I mean, I'm, the, I'm building bridges. Like, what are you turning <laughs> me away for? And so it was like, first of all, be humble, Bassie. Mm-hmm. You think, you know, you're the inclusion lady at this point. But then the next week to be able to reach out to someone, a friend of of the same faith after telling her and then walk into a worship space of the same faith and be so welcome was, it was a lovely kind of one, two situation. So that could have been someone to have a bad day or someone. Yeah. Or could have been, I mean, 
you know, this is the thing. We talk about being humble and open-hearted, but here's the really important thing. If you, if I reach out to you and say, Kelly, tell me about your life and you don't feel like telling me, I don't have any right to be instructed by you. It is a privilege for me to engage with someone who's other than me and have them because a lot of times people are constantly having to explain, explain, explain. So if I, if you reach out to me and I don't feel like being your teacher, there's no right. And the second thing I'll say is, and I, I realized this when I did this in Brooklyn, 10 years later, there's so much violence that's being, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, visited upon people, especially in worship spaces, yeah. even more so the second time I did this and the first that really, yeah. you know, it was almost revolutionary for anybody to let me in their door. They didn't mm-hmm. know who I was because they didn't know, are you coming in peace or, or something else? And so I think the, no, you can't come here until you talk to the elders experience. I had that one time was perfectly normal. I mean, it made perfect sense. Because people, I mean, worship spaces that are not, you know, carnivals, <laughs> it's like, this is sacred space. And who are you? And what, who sent you? And why do you, why do you want to be here? And so at the time, I'm not saying that I had all of those lofty thoughts, but in time I realized, okay, be humble, A, and B, there's no rights here. I can't just come into your house because I'm telling you, well, no, Kelly, I'm visiting houses. It's fine. You can yeah. tell me, they, no, I don't want you to come in my house. I've been doing a bunch of uh, as I'm sure you have virtual learning conferences, sure. um, whether I'm speaking or attending or talking or planning or whatever. And uh, just this last uh, a couple of weeks, so many conversations around future of work skills and uh, very much in particular to the advent of AI um, and, and just computer technology and big data and all that. And, and this, this emerging understanding that if we're going to really arm our people uh, uh, to be successful in the future, they've got to tap into everything we're talking about, the most human aspects, their storytelling, their ability to to talk through difference, um, their curiosity, because the two things computers, computers aren't funny and they can't improvise. So, and I think there's lessons inside both improv and comedy for, for, for what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, I've been um, I've been in technology-enabled learning since the beginning. I mean, my background's in AI. I studied technology. Mm-hmm. I thought I was going to be a techie and then found a way, way back in the 90s before there was ever E, so everyone can you know that I'm now 140 years old, um, to figure out how to do cool things. Back then, it was interesting because we didn't, we weren't answering 4 billion emails a day. It was new and novel. We were creating 40-hour mm-hmm. simulated environments that felt like video games and very different from our day-to-day. Now we're in a situation where, oh my gosh, I'm staring at this laptop all day long and can I please do something else and why I think we're evolving to um, different ways of using technology and why we talk about learning experiences because people want to do cool things and have experiences and learn that way. People are not as excited to to stare at their laptop even more. Um, But I believe, and I'm intrigued by augmented intelligence, that is AI, you know, to your point, technology does what technology does well great data speed, the ability to make a lot of decisions in a very short amount of time to learn. I mean, it's like the Netflix experience of your life or Disney plus or whatever platform you want to use, but then people to your point are still people. And so can we liberate people to do what people do best and let technology do what technology does best. And that is actually um, an interesting and emerging, I think, field where people are being very thoughtful about, well, we don't want technology to do everything because to your point, you know, my computer's not going to make me laugh by itself but maybe we can in, embed 
use technology in different ways to deliver learning experiences that are cool. And cool sometimes is a good context for, yeah. for, for, for aha moments and for learning new things. Uh, you mentioned you had a third project that you're working on. Yes, I do. So Tell us about it. Um, the first one was my 52 weeks of worship. And then this year, uh, uh, the second one was my 365 days of learning where I learned something new every day and shared it out with my organization. I'm frankly, I work, I wrote a book about the first one and I just finished two journals, one for each of those. So they uh, watched this space. But the third one I call the HBCU giving challenge. And frankly, last summer during so much of the unrest that was happening in the communities of color, myself and many other, I think, um, uh, people of color were just feeling like there's just so much. There's so much to process, so heavy. What can I actually do to help people? I'm someone who's very focused on trying to figure out how I can be of service to actual humans, like one person's life. And because learning and education is something that really, um, I believe, is transformative, I decided that I was going to um, make a financial donation. There are over 100, um, uh, over 100 historically Black colleges and universities. I did not go to one. Um, but I started last August, I believe, um, just giving a donation to one per week. And I'm from Atlanta, so I started with the ones that are around, like Howard, I mean, Spellman and Morehouse, and, and then, you know, moved to these, the ones that I knew. But now I'm on week 43, and I've given to 43 historically Black colleges or universities. And now I'm learning more history, universities and colleges that I knew nothing about, um, hopefully will amplify um, this project in the future. I mean, I like to start before I'm ready and then figure out what's going to go, how it's going to go. But for me, it's transformative because I think of students who are just trying to get an education, um, especially during COVID. They have big dreams. I think education transforms people's lives and communities' lives. And to be able to, for me, learn more about these institutions and support students um, and feel like I'm doing something tangible to help people who, um, and you know, frankly, it's not just you know Black students who are at these universities. They're all, almost all of them are now um, multiracial, multiethnic. But that's my current project is the HBCU Giving Challenge. And it's going to take me two years to get through all of them. I'm just, I'm almost at a year. And then like most of my projects, I'll see what this means in terms of what I write about it or what I share about it, yeah. or who, who jumps on and joins me and how I can amplify. Um, so yeah, that's my third. That's the one I'm working it. on now. Uh, we always end the podcast by having our guests tell us a, a yes and story and you know the rules of improvisation. And as I said before uh, we started taping, you are a living yes and uh, that, that's the biggest compliment I can give an individual. Uh, but do you have a story for us? Well, thank you for that compliment. I receive it. Um, I will say that you're right. My career has been just a, a masterclass in yes and. And every time there's been a twist or a turn, I've said, oh, okay, what am I going to do here? And I left consulting after six years because you know I went to school in Silicon Valley and I had a lot of friends doing innovative things at startups that are now household names. And I thought I should be doing something innovative. So I went to a startup that no one's heard of because it died after a year. And I thought, oh, well, I've hopped off the track. What am I going to do? And that was a yes and moment because I could have just kind of gone back to a big corporation or I could have just wept in despair. And I probably did that for more than one night. But I did two things. One, I started my own company. And that was one thing that I did and uh, focused on e-learning strategy. Mm -hmm. And I started at Second City. Um, and I had taken courses before and gotten, kind of got through halfway through level A, but work got in the way. But at that moment where I was thinking, isn't this when you're supposed to do things that you love when like life hands you a, you know, 
uh, twist or a turn. And so I was able to do those two things. And that was a yes and no more. I said, yes, is it terrible that I just lost my job? Absolutely. And I'm going to take this opportunity to do two things. One is study comedy, which I certainly love. And one is to see what happens if I hang my own shingle. And those, those two choices have informed the rest of my life since then. Yeah. You're making mistakes work for you and you're seeing all obstacles as gifts. This is the, the stuff we teach. I love yes, it. Yes, absolutely. Tammy Vassie, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a delight. Getting the SAN is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor and producer is L.F. Garris. We get support at the Second City from Jenny Crowley, Abby Bumblebear, Mike Farinaccio, and Colleen Faye. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you have questions, guest ideas, or if you want more information on working with Second City Works, you can go to www.secondcityworks.com, or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com. Survive